Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Listen in as your host, Jimmy Atkinson, invites industry leaders to share their best OZ insights and investment strategies. From market updates to fund launches, policy news, tax mitigation strategies, and more, we cover it all here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Joining the show today is Brian Duran, Signing Director at Clifton Larson Allen, a professional services firm with wealth advisory and tax planning services. They have offices nationwide. Brian normally is based in Minneapolis, but today he joins us from London, England. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Jimmy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You bet, Brian. Thanks for joining. Uh, So this is uh, Clifton Larson Allen's, or we'll, we'll call that firm CLA. For the rest of the episode, this is CLA's first time appearing on the Opportunity Zones podcast or on the Opportunity DB platform in any fashion. Uh, so, can you give me and our listeners and viewers some background on CLA as a professional services firm, and and how do Opportunity Zones fit into the the overall picture of what CLA provides for your clients? Yeah, thanks again, Jimmy. I think uh, we're the proverbial longtime listener, first time caller uh, into the show. We're a big fan of what you do and and how you advocate for OZs across the country. And uh, so thanks again for the opportunity to present with you here today and and talk about uh, something that we're really passionate about as a firm. Um, So as Jimmy said, CLA is a professional services firm that has service lines across a lot of different platforms. Uh, principally, we have a traditional CPA practice, tax consulting and assurance. Uh, we have outsourced accounting and we have a very significant wealth advisory practice with about $10 billion in assets under management. And those are retail type clients that, um, that uh, we manage funds for on a fiduciary basis. Um, you know, and one of the things that makes us unique in the OZ space is because through our different service lines, which include M&A on the transaction advisory side and, in, and the investment side on, under our wealth advisory platform, we get to see a 360-degree view of opportunity zones that originates with capital gains, as we all know. And our clients uh, that are you know, sort of the baby boomer generation are selling their businesses. They have large capital gains. We also have capital gains that are realized through our uh, private investment platform under our wealth advisory uh, our group there. And then with our tax practice, we see a lot of capital gains come through from multiple sources. And so we've strategically designed ourselves to be in a role where we can advise clients from beginning to end through the OZ lifecycle. Um, and so we have a number of qualified opportunity funds on our private platform that are available to our retail investors. Uh, we have a great network of relationships with family offices and other uh, capital uh, aggregators and investors throughout the country, um, all being channeled under our wealth advisory practice. Uh, but then, of course, our tax function plays a critical role in the OZ space because uh, one of my roles, uh, and I am a CPA, I'm not a wealth advisor, so I, I uh, want to um, explain that up front that I'm, I'm not a wealth advisor, but uh, my role as a CPA Um, One of those is to lead our firm's Opportunity Zone working group. And what that involves is supporting the OZ footprint that our firm has established and and continues to grow in for the Opportunity Funds, uh, the Qualified Opportunity Zone businesses, and the investors in the space. Um, We work with anywhere between three and 400 uh, 
QOFs and QOZBs um, and hundreds, um, if not thousands of investors that have uh, entered the OZ space as a stakeholder. Um, you know, over uh, the course of the, few, the last few years since the program has been generated, we've developed a footprint that we estimate is somewhere around uh, 2 billion or a little over in terms of the total investment uh, that's, been, that's been made into OZs. And so we've seen the attraction that our clients are paying to it. And uh, we've similarly invested a great deal of uh, human resources and technical expertise into the space. Yeah, it seems like it fits perfectly into uh, the professional services that, that your firm provides and you can point your clients in the right direction uh, no matter where they're coming from uh, in, in your web of services you provide, whether they're coming from uh, M&A or from tax planning or from wealth advisory, there's, there may be some direction uh, incorporating opportunity zones that you can point those clients in. A, a large part of what uh, I want to talk with you about now, Brian, for the next few minutes is opportunity zones as part of a wealth and tax strategy um, or wealth planning or, or tax planning strategy. Opportunity zones, you, you and I were talking about them just before we hit the record button. You said they could really be a very powerful tool in wealth preservation, but also in wealth creation. And of course, there's a tax strategy component to that as well. How do you illustrate to clients what opportunity zones can do in those regards. Yeah, and so thanks. That's a great point to highlight, Jimmy. And we've been a big advocate that private investments are uh, a great part of a portfolio for any investor. And so I work alongside of our wealth advisors uh, to be seamless with clients so that they understand as they're building their portfolio what the tax implications are of that portfolio. So we do a lot of private placements um, uh, on our platform, um, both OZ and non-OZ. But specifically with OZ, because of the fact that the tax benefit uh, has an ability to compound and create this, this tax-free return over time, it really has the ability to not only preserve but create wealth as part of an integrated uh, tax and financial plan. And what I mean by that is uh, when you compare an OZ deal versus a non-OZ deal, the non-OZ deal has to be funded with after-tax uh, investment cash. And in an OZ deal, you essentially take that tax that you would otherwise pay, and you're able to defer recognition of it on your income tax return and then invest it. So by investing that deferred tax, the first major benefit or group of benefits is you get this additional amount that has the ability to compound alongside your original uh, after-tax investment. So investing pre-tax has this compounding effect, but then also when you invest in that way, you unlock the tax-free benefits on the back end after 10 years. So there is the, the deferral period until 2026, uh, as we know, but then Really, the biggest benefit in the OZ program comes at the end. After 10 years, when you have the ability to step up your basis to fair market value and pay no tax on gains. So it's a wealth creator as well as a wealth preserver. Yeah, that first point that you made, I think, gets lost sometimes. Uh, that ability to compound additional money uh, up front, I, I, I'll i usually use an example of something like you have a $100,000 gain. Typically, if you're doing a non-OZ deal, that $100,000 gain after you pay 
state and federal taxes, it can be eroded down to, you know, somewhere between, let's say, $70,000 to, to $77,000, roughly in that range, give or take, right? Um, so you're, you know, you're, you're putting, you're putting 70 to $70,000 into the next investment. That's just less money. That's going to compound over the next five, 10, 15, 20 years, or, or however long that you keep the investment for with OZs, you get to put the full hundred thousand dollars to work right away. That's just additional amount of time that a, additional amount of money that gets a compound for, for, for a longer and longer period of time. It's, it can, it can add quite a bit to the after-tax return. So yeah, I know you guys do a lot of financial modeling for your clients. Typically, when we're talking about the after-tax effects on returns, if you're comparing an OZ deal to a non-OZ deal, all else being equal, on average, what do you see as the impact of OZ investing on, on returns? Yeah, so that's really the biggest piece that our seamless services can add value to a consultation with a client. Uh, because the the before tax returns, whether you're investing with pre or post tax money, should be identical. You're getting into the same deal. You're just getting a smaller slice of that deal. But the after tax returns that that we help our wealth advisors illustrate, you know, by investing that deferred tax and then gaining the tax free benefits over the back end, our our modeling that we've done on significant number of projects. Uh, on average, I'd say there's generally about a 500 basis point increase in the overall 10-year annualized IRR uh, from a after-tax non-OZ deal to an after-tax OZ deal, and that translates anywhere from you know one to one and a half on the equity multiple. And so it's it's enormously compounding when you think about the tax benefits of the OZ deal, giving you a higher return than in a non-OZ deal. And, and a lot of ways that uh, investments are sometimes underwritten in a, in a non-OZ environment, the traditional investing, it's looking at pre-tax and the, the tax obligations or the tax benefits that uh, come from that private investment you know, are really left to the tax advisors to, to analyze and assess. But for OZ projects and investments, we come right alongside with the wealth advisors to illustrate these hugely important benefits of investing in OZ. Yeah, it is crucial, right? Because you're absolutely right that there's so much of a tax component that goes into what makes the returns happen for Opportunity Zone investors. I mean, you said to me before we came on the air here, Brian, that, it, that that's why it's so crucial to have that tax advisor and the wealth advisor participating in the same conversation with the client. I don't know if you had anything else to add there. Yeah, absolutely. The The seamless uh, effect of building a team around an OZ strategy is crucial. Um, you know, they have to fit within a well-crafted financial plan, but the tax implications need to be understood very detailed. And, you know, just like I don't try to be a wealth advisor, uh, our wealth advisors don't try to be tax professionals, although we both know enough to bring each other into the fold and build that solid team around around our client, and that's yeah, you the know approach to that we have. Yeah, exactly. Right. We we both know enough to be dangerous in each yep. other's space, but uh, yeah, the the well crafted team is is critical. Knowing enough to be dangerous, I like to uh, describe my um, my expertise on this topic in that regard oftentimes as well. Uh, <laughs> but then I I need to go in and bring in a a Brian or or somebody like that to to really do uh, really knows the like the back of their hand all of the tax implications of opportunity zone deals and 
and deal structuring and investing. So, well, let's um let, let's move on to our next big topic that we wanted to cover today, Brian, which was uh, the macro view. Uh, what's going on with our economy lately and how those macroeconomic conditions or trends are impacting opportunity zone deal making, opportunity zone transactions, opportunity zone investing. So, you know, the first topic we can cover right now with respect to macro are interest rates. Uh, interest rates are going up and they're going up rapidly at unprecedented rates or, or unprecedented in my lifetime, at least the, the, the amount that they've gone up over the last um, several meetings of the FOMC, they, they raised them another 75 basis points a few weeks back. Um, and interest rates today are much, much higher than they were even just four or five months ago. What impact has that had on, I think we're going to talk about the impact that's had on, on a variety of things, but, but firstly, you wanted to cover the impact that that has on penalty calculations for failing QOFs because the penalties on QOFs are actually tied to a variable interest rate. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, then that's a, a really important part that should not be overlooked in the OZ space. And we, we take a macro topic like interest rates, which is an easy one to analyze on some of the deal fundamentals. But we can't forget that the IRS has many different interest rates that it uses uh, that are tied to a variable rate. And so whenever the baseline rate in the country rises, so do all of these other rates. And specifically with OZ, the underpayment rate that is used uh, has essentially doubled over the last, uh, mm. over the last year. And so um, there's a couple of important, important points to consider. The first being that through 2021, we had the pandemic relief that was uh, in the most recent IRS notice 2021-10 provided essentially free penalty relief for many QOFs uh, through the end of 2021. Um, so you were not penalized by failing to meet your 90% investment standard. Um, there was there was absolute recognition that the pandemic caused delays in deploying capital. And so there was, there was relief granted deemed to be reasonable cause. You could, you could have just been sitting on the cash, not doing anything. And you were still free of penalties that relief ended in 2021. And so now throughout the calendar year of 2022, the penalty regime under the regulations are, are back in full effect again, but not only are they in effect, but the interest rate that they're tied to, rises. And so this underpayment rate, which sat at 3% at the end of 2021, has slowly started to tick up through the course of the year. And now for the uh, fourth quarter of 2022, that same rate is, is already at 6%. So it's effectively doubled the cost for a failing QOF. And so there's even more greater incentive now for QOFs that have been delayed in deploying capital to find those deals to get in to get invested in so that they can avoid this unnecessary financial cost to, uh, to their investors. And so we just can't forget about the significance of a penalty rate um, that's tied to this, this variable interest rate. Right. Uh, and at the same time, I think uh, maybe the market for finding deals has gotten a little bit tighter as, as values have risen and I, and transactions have slowed down a little bit. So that's, that's also somewhat concerning there, but uh, yeah, good, Good to point out that the penalties are back and they're double what you may have thought they were a year ago. Well, let's talk about how how interest rates have also had an impact on 
a lot of these QOF pro formas had modeled in a cash out refinance, oftentimes prior to the end of 2026, so that the investors could pay their tax bill that comes due in 27 when the when the uh, when the gain is recognized at the end of 26. But with interest rates having gone up so much, those expectations of being able to do a cash out refinance, converting the 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 construction loan into permanent debt upon asset stabilization, um, how has that impacted a QOF's operation? And I know you also wanted to talk about how you know if the if the QOFs want to just accelerate when they when they do the cash out refinance um, sooner rather than later that they may run into an issue of what's termed a disguised sale. So, so talk, walk us through all those points, please. Yeah, so there's, there's obvious uncertainty in the markets right now with respect to interest rates. And so uh, while, while I agree that virtually all of the pro formas that we look at for QOFs are anticipating some type of cash out refi to assist with the deferred taxes in 2026, the instability and uncertainty has forced a lot of those fund managers to try to accelerate or at least consider accelerating that cash out event earlier in order to lock in um, a, a better interest rate at a time when they at least know they can. Um, but there's an important consideration there. One is that that obviously has an effect on the pro forma, um, which should be evaluated. But then two, this sort of unseen provision in the the regulations that requires OZ investors to treat their investment of cash as if it were not cash, then makes it subject to this whole host of rules that's governed by the very complicated uh, uh, regulations of Section 707 governing disguised sales. And essentially, those rules are to prevent early cash outs by investors that are contributing into QOFs. Uh, there's a there's a general two year window where any transactions that are taken out within two years of the original contribution are going to be presumed to be part of a disguised sale arrangement, and that requires a very fact specific analysis, a tax analysis, in order to determine whether or not you actually have an issue. But there's a two year presumption that if there's cash going in and cash coming out within two years it's a disguised sale. Um, on the other side of that two-year window, there's not a presumption. Uh, however, there's still risk factors that should be assessed. So it's critically important that uh, OZ sponsors are being very transparent with their investors, engaging the help of their tax professionals to assess any possible disguised sale issues. Uh, because the consequences cannot be understated uh, if, if a disguised sale is triggered. And those consequences essentially look back to the original investment date of the, of the OZ investor and invalidate their contribution and their deferred gain. And it would pull back, it, it may have the, the possibility of pulling back the income and making it recognized in that year, um, which would cause amended returns and all sorts of heartburn on the status of their OZ investment. But most importantly, if their deferred gain is not validated, their entire qualifying investment in the, the QOF, including the ability to take advantage of the 10-year tax-free benefit, is gone. Um, and now, 
I'm sort of sounding doom and gloom there, but I, I, I can't underscore it enough that these provisions need to be monitored very closely. And I, I think that's the basic, the, the basic premise of the, of the, the point. And although not all cases will require a retroactive look, some cases might create an inclusion event. And inclusion events have their own set of issues to solve as well. But uh, in either case, it affects the status of the investor's uh, investment in the QOF as being eligible for the future 10-year benefit. And that 10-year benefit, as we talked about, is how important it is to the overall tax effectiveness and the, the economic effectiveness. That has to be preserved at all costs. And so as operators are considering these cash-out refis at earlier dates than they had originally anticipated, the two-year rule and the disguised sale rule definitely need to be analyzed by a tax professional. It, it cannot be said any, uh, any more discreetly than that. It's, a, it's a, an area that requires a lot of facts and circumstances analysis. It's one of those roadmaps where it's not a clear path. So um, my, my point is just creating awareness around that issue because we've seen it, if I've, if I've seen it once a week, uh, I've seen it you know, two or three times a week over the course of the summer um, as interest rates had started to rise. So it's an area that we've paid a lot of attention to, advised a lot of clients on, and, uh, and we feel like we're helping to preserve these tax benefits by advising appropriately on that issue. Yeah, that's a that's a very important point. By the way, it's one that I haven't heard of until we started talking right before we uh, went on here, Brian. This disguised sale rule. I have one technical question. I don't want to get too much in the weeds yeah. on this particular talk, but I did have one technical question regarding the timing. When does the two year clock start? Uh, if if I write a check as an LP into a larger QOF on January one, let's say, and then the last investor comes in and writes a check on June 30th. When does that clock start? Does it start ticking for me on January 1 and that other guy on June 30th? Or does the, the clock not start until the whole thing is closed? Or or is the, is the answer to that question too complicated to answer in a, in a few minutes here? No, not, not for me. I, I'm going to have to caution myself on not getting too technical because I am a, a CPA by, by trade, of course. But the, the two-year measurement starts with respect to each investor mm, okay. and it's unique to each investor. The problem is that when the distributions are made, usually they're made unilaterally at the right. same time. So one investor might be past the two years and one might not be. Um, but with predominantly all of the OZ structures that we have, have seen using the indirect structure where a QOF invests into a QOZB and then the QOZB is the one doing the actual development. Mm. Um, we can ignore the timing of the funding from the QOF into the QOZB. It's really the investors themselves that were concerned about the timing of their investment. And so, right. as you know, there's different time periods that can be stacked on on end to end for when the investors come in, then when the QOF funds the QOZB, and then the QOZB operating under its working capital safe harbor. Um, but specifically to your question, the two years for the disguised sale measurement starts when the investors contribute to the QOF. Got it. So my my two-year starts on when I, when I write my check, but somebody else's might start later. And it's up to the fund manager to make sure that all of his investors are in the clear, I would imagine, is what uh, he, he should be thinking of uh, when he does an accelerated cash out refinance. Make sure you're past that two-year point. Put 
put simply, but I think, I think overall, I guess you and I would probably both advise, make sure you're getting some, uh, some professional help from, from a, a serious CPA firm with, with experience in this regard. Um, let's, let's, let's talk about a uh, final point we want to talk about with respect to interest rates rising. And then I wanted to talk very briefly on a, a couple of other macro topics, but interest rates rising could also have some impact on capital stacks, um, changing how, how they're composed, essentially changing either the amount of gain dollars versus non-gain dollars or uh, debt to equity ratio. What, what impacts do changes to capital stacks have on some of these QOFs if, if, if interest rates lead to uh, some changes there? Yeah. So, so as we both know, as you've talked about a lot on your show, um, debt is a, a critical element that is uh, an attractive tool in the OZ space. And using that leverage is important to the overall capitalization structure of a deal. But if, if OZ investors were contributing gains into a deal that uh, was maybe on the more thin side of the capitalization, but now with the changing rate environment, uh, the lenders are no longer willing to lend and underwrite on that high of a loan to cost or loan to value, two things could happen. They could either have the project pulled, which would then create a series of timing issues, but then it could also require additional capital to be funded into the, the deal. Mm-hmm. And if investors have already made their contributions under a 180-day time period that they had to invest, it's quite possible that they're going to be past that window and they don't, they might not have other gains. So they're either going to be trying to scramble and liquidate something in order to sell, which in the market right now, that may or may not be, you know, as readily available as it was six or eight months ago. But also if they, if they don't have any gains and they make a, just a general contribution, um, you know, they might end up with a mixed fund investment and a mixed fund investment is one where, you still get to walk through the OZ benefits, but only for the qualified portion. So if you still have the same percentage interest in the deal, you're just you're getting some of your OZ benefit eroded because you have after-tax capital that's commingled with your pre-tax capital. And so monitoring these changes in the capital stack, attempting to rebalance in the most tax-efficient way possible. Uh, could create a challenge if if there's uh, if there's no more gains left to uh, to go back to the well for. Sure, uh, that makes perfect sense. So yeah, it's interesting how uh, interest rate changes have had all these different kind of unintended <laughs> impacts on on opportunity zone deal making and fundraising. But but there you have it. I want to talk briefly on a, a couple other macro topics uh, before I let you go. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about inflation. Brian, inflation's at 40-year highs, roughly. Uh, the last CPI print, I think, was uh, 8 point something, 8.3%. I can't remember exactly. It's been in the uh, the 8s and 9s for the last several months here. Clearly, inflation's a, a major problem impacting uh, much of the world, and, and in particular, the United States we're talking about right now. What impact has uh, inflation had on opportunity zones from where you sit? Well, where, where we sit on advising a lot of sponsors, uh, it's definitely caused a slowdown this year in deals gaining traction. You know, from a materials cost standpoint, deals that used to underwrite you know, very, very positively are now, you know, they, they've had a lot of their 
return eroded because of the material cost. And so then it has a ripple through effect with how it's capitalized, like we just talked about. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, six, seven months ago in, you know, the, the springtime of the year, um, it was a lot different. And we, we actually saw deals that the, the funding just stopped. We could not, some clients could not get a GMP contract in place because of all of the contingencies that were being added at the last minute. Um, and so some of that has started to pick back up over the course of the summer as material costs have stabilized uh, to a degree. We're starting to see those get re-underwritten with new pro formas, you know, with different material costs now. Um, so we're, we're starting to see that again, uh, kind of trend positively, but it's still at a level that's far below where the previous trend would have, we would have expected it to have taken us through the course of 2022. So yeah, I would say still on the, on the low side, although um, starting to see it tick back up here into the fall. Um, but yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch the, not only the nation, but the world economy and, and in terms of how they manage this, um, because it, it directly impacts the ability of funds to execute on their plan. And I guess anecdotally, I would I would say though that I've had a lot of questions from QOZ sponsors asking if there are any delays that are allowable under the working capital safe harbor provisions for these types of market disruptions. And and you know there's there's the built-in delays for um, delays from governmental agencies that is right in the regulations. There's the disaster relief delays which we experienced through COVID. Yep. and the, the course of the pandemic but there's no delays just for general market conditions and so one of the other indirect implications is that for deals that were already funded and are now seeing price escalations they haven't fully deployed according to their written plan and written schedule uh, under the working capital safe harbor and so there is some compression on those timelines as well that's being felt by funds that are and businesses that are already, you know, in the ground. Um, not to mention just the ones that are trying to get in the ground by having a deal that pencils out, which is often becoming challenging now in the in the current environment. So, a couple different ripple through effects there that we are seeing. Although, you know, I, I still think it's starting to move a little bit more in the positive direction. What's what's the solution there or the resolution there for for those types of projects that? that are impacted like that, or is there one? I, patience might be one solution, although that might not be a very practical one. Um, you know, the, the working capital safe harbor has um, some implications that uh, I, I would really like it if uh, we could get some additional clarity from, from Treasury on, on whether only the equity or we can include debt sources mm -hmm. in that time period to maybe extend out the length of time that the working capital safe harbor is live for, for defining your covered period. Um, there, there've been a lot of discussions and, uh, and literature written where it's been acknowledged that there is, uh, a little ambiguity in that part of the provision. So people might think they're working towards a 31 month clock to consume all of their, their working capital and get the building built and stabilized so that when the safe harbor turns off, they can be protected under the general rules. But there's other schools of thought that's, that think that you don't necessarily need to be completion and, and starting to stabilize by the end of that time period. So it's a little bit of, uh, of you know, a question mark on how that's going to be viewed. But, 
you know, as a solution, you know, I, I think that we're seeing sponsors be very aggressive in trying to deploy what they have. And I don't, I don't think that's necessarily means they're making, you know, quick decisions or unwise decisions, but they're, they're finding opportunities where they need to, uh, in order to, whether it's save costs or, or make other pivots or actions. Um, but they're, they're being very nimble, um, as the market is allowing. So it's, it's, uh, interesting to see that play out according to, you know, a set of facts that might've been different from what they started with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough spot to be in. Well, um, uh, finally, what about the downturn in the equities market? And uh, I, I, say, I should state, um, I'm a big long-term buy and hold stock market investor. And about this time last year, I was suggesting, gee, we're coming up on the end of 2021. And there's just been this huge run up in the stock market um, over the last several years. Um, but in particular, over the last couple of years, since we hit that little downturn at the beginning of COVID and then that spike back up. Um, to, it, there were a lot of capital gains that were kind of locked away in the equities markets. And, and now I'm looking 12 months later and we've had a, a pretty big drawdown across the, the broader stock market, the S&P 500 and any other type of index you want to look at. Pretty much everything is, is down significant, significantly um, 15, 20, 25% plus across the board, depending on what time frame you're looking at. But I'm kind of looking at the beginning of this year. Has that led to any slowdown in activity, just the fact that there are likely much fewer capital gains in the marketplace to defer into opportunity zone funds. What have you seen? Have you seen the slowdown? Yeah. So we, again, with our, our viewpoint in opportunity zone, we see this from the standpoint of our clients that have exposure in our wealth advisory platform to the securities markets. And I think definitely with those, with those, declines in the overall market value you know we we did see some retraction in the amount of gains but there's still a little bit of un, uncertainty as to whether some of those taxpayers are just not selling stuff that is appreciated because they're just holding um or whether they will before the end of the year which has historically been a big time to uh harvest gains and then deploy it into opportunity zones it, it's a little bit uh, yet to be determined on the the true impact of the availability of gains. I mean, there's certainly you know long term holders that still have some amount of appreciation. It just might not be as high as it once was. I think what we're probably seeing more of is you know reinvestment in you know the lowering your average cost base to things like that, but less of people that are just selling altogether um, and recognizing whatever appreciation they have left. So, you know, it, it seems to be there's some patience that's being uh, endured right now. And I think the other implication of that is that the deal flow and the capitalization is similarly slowing as well because the access of capital is not, you know, as freely mobile as it was 12 months ago. Now, interestingly, with this proposed legislation that was introduced in April, that would extend the OZ program and add a number of other um, uh, parts to the incentive. If that gets passed with, with any sort of timing around the end of the year and the 15% and the 10% basis step up provisions become in play again, I do think, it, again, if it's 
retroactive enough to be applicable to 2022. I do think that the end of the calendar year is going to see an uptick in OZ investing. We definitely saw it in 2021 when the seven or when the five-year basis uh, adjustment expired. We definitely saw it in 2019 when the seven-year adjustment expired. So if the laws change, and this is a big what if, if the laws change, I think we would see that again in 2022. No, I think you're right. And um, I'm hopeful that does come to fruition, Ryan. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today and getting your insights. Before we go, can you tell our viewers and our listeners where they can go if they want to learn more about you and CLA? Sure. So our external website is uh, www.claconnect.com. And we have an Opportunity Zones landing page there. We have a real estate blog that uh, we contribute to um, with regularity on OZ topics. And my name will be on both of those pages. So I will be accessible from, from our external site. Fantastic. And of course, as always for our listeners and our viewers, I will have show notes available at the Opportunity DB website. You can find those show notes for today's episode at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there we will have links to all of the resources that Brian and, I, Brian and I discussed on today's episode. And please also be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or your favorite podcast listening platform to always get the latest episodes from Opportunity DB. Brian, again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Likewise, Jimmy. The pleasure's been all mine. I appreciate everything that you're doing in the space and uh, look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you. Take care. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by Opportunity DB. You can access our show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com forward slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 